Welcome back again to the Real Life Theology Podcast. My name is Chris, really grateful to be with you and really glad that you are listening again today with us here at Renew. In this episode, Scott Sager talks about his trips to the Holy Land that he takes people on every year. He talks about his journey leading people through the Holy Land and seeing where and how Jesus would have walked. He also equates that back to the Desert Fathers in the Old Testament and really ties all that in in a really impactful and meaningful way. Let's go ahead and check out what Scott has to say. Well, uh, welcome everyone. My name is Scott Sager. It's so good to be with you guys. Uh, a little bit about me. I am the Vice President for Church Relations at Lipscomb University right down the street. I also uh, teach in the Bible department. I teach uh, the story courses, and I also teach in the uh, student teachers while they're doing their student teaching. And then lastly, I lead a trip to Israel every year. And uh, part of what you'll catch here, I wanted to give you just a little bit about... Uh, a journey that I've been on. Uh, every year I take a group of students and we go on a trip. And this trip begins uh, in Tel Aviv, makes its way to Jerusalem. And uh, you've probably heard about all these trips to the Holy Lands and all the places that there are to see. And so we do all the things that you would typically do. We spend five days in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and out throughout that region. And then we go up through Samaria, go to Caesarea on the sea, uh, Haifa and see Mount Carmel. Then we go through Megiddo and see where Armageddon was. And then we make our way to Nazareth and then onto the Sea of Galilee. From there, we spend two days there. We go up to the north. It's really kind of the same things that most trips would do if you went to the Holy Land. But this is a student trip that's uh, 15 days long. And so after we do all of that, we cross over into Jordan and uh, we begin to uh, visit there and we cross over in the north by the sea of Ga- yeah by the sea of Galilee and so the first place that we see is Peniel where Jacob wrestled with God and we stop there and kind of reflect on what that was about and then we go to one of the Decapolis cities of uh, the time of Jesus and this is the ten Greek cities and we get to experience what one of those was like we go to a church called in Madaba uh, which is not far from the Jordan River. And this is a brand new kind of modern church. But if you go inside, what you'll see is the oldest mosaic of the Christian world uh, as a map on the floor. And so this is a little bit of what that mosaic looks like on the floor inside of Madaba. And from there, we go to Mount Nebo. And uh, we take the students up on top of Mount Nebo. We look out over the promised land like Moses did. And on a clear day, you can see... Jericho, and you can see Hebron, you can see Jerusalem, you can see Nazareth, you can see all the way towards the Sea of Galilee. And so you can appreciate what it was like when God took Moses up on top and allowed him to see the promised land uh, to uh, pay to there. We then go down to Petra, uh, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. We get to see uh, the treasury and what that... uh, Nabataean city was, and they were the spice traders of the day. And We always get our picture made in front of uh, this one, just like uh, you should, right? So, and we remind each other that Indiana Jones uh, rode a horse in there in one of the movies. If you keep going after you go to Petra, you go a little further, you're in the deepest part of the desert. And uh, we go to a place called Wadi Rum, and we see where Uh, the seven pillars of wisdom is. And if any of you are familiar with Lawrence of Arabia and some of the others, not only did the children of Israel come through there, but it became a part of of that. Uh, 
we get all the students and we get on these Jeeps and we uh, tool around in the desert just to kind of get a feel for what that's like. And then I've got a guide and uh, he arranges for us. Uh, you can see St. Catherine's Monastery in the distance. Uh, many important things happened in that region at the time of the Old Testament. Uh, you've got the place where uh, Moses went up to receive the law. You have the place where the golden calf story took place. There's just a lot going on uh, there, and you remember those stories well. St. Catherine's Monastery is the place where we spend the night, and so they host us inside uh, the grounds of the monastery. You can see the gardens, and there's all these little guest houses right here. And so we had 42 of us who stayed uh, there at the monastery, and we're uh, hosted by a, a man named Father Justin. He is a, a an Orthodox priest, believe it or not, from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, and he grew up Baptist, and he went to the University of Texas, and he studied Greek, and uh, he decided to uh, love the liturgy of the Greek Orthodox Church and became a librarian and ended up at Sinai. And so he takes us in to see the library, and we get a VIP tour of what's going on there. It's the number two library in the world uh, behind the Vatican for theological books. And you can see they have over 3,000 ancient theological books, and they're in the process right now of raising money to put each one of them in a stainless steel box. These books uh, are all Christian books that date back to 500, 600 AD. And so uh, he lets us look at a few of them and see the gold leaf that's on them and kind of get a picture for what it was like, the way these books were being uh, deposited there. And you can see uh, he could be a member of ZZ Top uh, if he weren't a priest. And uh, he's just become a great friend. But I wanted you guys to realize that the monastery at St. Catherine's was founded in 330 A.D. Uh, Constantine's mother, Helena, when she went to the Holy Land, went to different places and spotted where the holy sites were and then built churches on them. And one of the places that she went was to Mount Sinai. And so this location dates back to uh, 330 but it's fascinating, even with that going on uh, in the basement, they are in the process. You can decide if it dates all the way back to Moses, but I can tell you it dates back you know, over uh, 1,600 years, this bush uh, that's been in this location. Uh, Father Justin is a... Father Justin, uh, I mean, uh, Richard Good is part of our team that travels there, and he's an eye that they have preserved at Sinai that are in Arabic, talking about... Christ. And uh, we're make, they're making those. After all of that, we go back into Israel. We spend two days at Jericho. We go to Masada. We go to the Dead Sea. We go to, uh, that I wanted to share with you guys. I came back from this trip and began a hike to the top so that we can be on the top of Mount Sinai uh, when the sun comes up. And that's us reading the Ten Commandments and then gathering there and then coming. And the other thing that hit me was that I think my students like, and it's really kind of fascinating how, now one of the things that I think you'll want to think about is that people have been gathering at that site to pray and to welcome the day in the name of Christ since 330 AD. Unbroken. Almost 1,700 years 
that different people who claim the name of Jesus have been gathering here uh, to pray. And so uh, outside is the burning bush that uh, something about the desert that's formative in the life with God. And so I wanted us to think about that, and that's why I call this desert discipleship, because we're all about seeing Christ formed in other people. And one of the things that we really don't think about is that location sometimes can be a help in forming people into the image of God. And what I mean by location is sometimes it's what we do without. Sometimes it's how the the consequences or the circumstances of life complicate things uh, that can help us. Mount Rushmore, we got four great Americans that we kind of uh, commemorate there. Who would be the four? They were all formed in the desert. That would, if there was a Mount Rushmore in Israel, who would be on it? Abraham, okay. Moses, Elijah, David. What do they all have in common? Is that it seems that uh, God does something to his people in the desert. Uh, Here's a passage from Isaiah. See, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? For I put water in the desert and rivers in the wasteland for my chosen people to drink, the people who I formed for myself, that they might announce my praise. There's something about the desert that is formative to the life of a follower of Jesus. There's something about the desert. So I wanted you to think with me. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, Ezekiel, John the Baptist, even Paul. What does Paul tell us in Galatians? He tells us that after his baptism and his appearance quickly to the apostles, he went away to Arabia. Where was Arabia back then? It included the Sinai Peninsula, was part of Arabia. And what we know is that he went to the desert and he spent a a season there trying to understand this Christian faith. And of course, the story of Jesus. The desert is part of the process of forming them so that God can use them. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. Why does the desert humble us and test us? Why does it reveal what is in our heart? Because there's something about being in a situation where we're totally dependent upon God and where there's a purging that happens that's important. So I wanted us to think quickly about uh, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, What we know is that after his baptism, it tells us in Luke, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, he returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness For 40 days he was tempted, he ate nothing, and afterwards, when that had ended, he was hungry. And then we have these temptations that come to Jesus. And y'all know them well because you've preached them, you know. You've taught classes about them, you you know these well. But one of them was to turn stones to bread. We have to ask, what does that mean? What's the implication there? Takes him up on a high mountain and says, 
All these kingdoms are mine. I can give them to whoever I want to. All you have to do, if you will worship me, all will be yours. Just say my name. Bow down to me. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Only God can be served. He goes up on the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down. Of course, Satan quotes scripture. And Jesus says, uh, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And what it says afterwards is that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So we ask the question, what did Jesus learn in the desert? That shouldn't be a King James the uh, there uh, in the desert. How did it help form him? What, what happened in the desert? Why was it formative? You want to think about that with me for a minute? Where Israel failed over 40 years, Jesus prevails over 40 days, right? Okay. Why is this so important? Why does this really, uh, this is his, you know, you hear about a president in their first hundred days. I mean, he's baptized. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he does is go out and wage war against the evil one in the desert. It's this formative battle. It's finding out what kind of a Messiah he's going to be. It's discovering where his strength lies. And so immediately upon his baptism, it's ushered into the wilderness, and there's a battle between good and evil, between uh, light and darkness. And Jesus is there being formed in the midst of this. Uh, Hebrews chapter... uh, I always never can remember Hebrews 5 verse 8 or Hebrews 8 verse 5 that tells us that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Uh, That uh, there were things that Jesus went through that were learning moments for him uh, as well. And so I wanted us to think about Jesus and what he learned. And it's interesting, um, early on they talked about these three principles that uh, were learned in the desert, chastity, obedience, and poverty. And uh, those are words I'm not going to use anymore, but I thought you'd want to know they're kind of good, old-fashioned words to describe uh, this process. But uh, I think John, don't you, is picking up on the temptation story in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, do not love the world. Because isn't that what time in the desert does? Is it reminds you of all the things that you don't need to love. Do not love uh, the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. And then in the next verse, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, chasing after food, the lust of the eyes, the kingdoms of the earth, and the pride of life, jump down, let everybody see you, is not from the Father, but from the world. And so we find here that there's something happening in the wilderness that is helping to form, helping to uh, prepare Jesus for his ministry. And so thinking about the desert and thinking about there must be something about the desert because there have been people going out to the desert for hundreds and hundreds of years. Enough years that we can say for almost 1,700 years there have been people who are followers of Christ who have left wherever they were and gone to the desert because they believed there was something happening at Sinai 
that they wanted to be connected to or to be a part of. And so uh, we call these people the Desert Fathers. And are you familiar with them a little bit? People have heard of the idea of the Desert Fathers. You know, there's, uh, there's some books on the Desert Fathers. Uh, the sayings of the Desert Fathers, the writings of the Desert Fathers. The most famous of all the Desert Fathers is a guy named Anthony. And uh, you'll find out he was from Egypt. And uh, his stories are told uh, with great lore there. A lot of books about uh, um, the Desert Fathers. This is my favorite one, and I'll leave it up here afterwards. And the reason I like this one um, is that the way that uh, the books on the Desert Fathers work is that they'll tell you about Anthony, and then they'll tell you all the famous sayings of Anthony. And then they'll tell you about Arsenius, and then they'll tell you about all the famous sayings. And they're little short, little, you know, two or three sentences usually, and then they'll just be numbered one after the other. But this book um, takes a different tack on it, and that doesn't make it right or wrong, but it takes a topic like lust or materialism or detachment, and then it tells you what every desert father said about that subject. So instead of hearing somebody and everything they said about every subject, it, it cuts it the other way. But there's some fascinating things in these books about uh, the Desert Fathers and what did they learn. And one of the things that people would do would be they would go out to these fathers to be discipled. And they would go and they would sit with the father, the Abba, and he would instruct them. Not for very long, but for a period of time, they would talk, they would rehearse, they would discuss things. And then the disciple maker will give them a word or two and say, think about this, try this. And then they would go off and then they would work on that. And then they'd come back and report on it uh, to the disciple maker. So you see disciples and disciple makers and this whole process just working out through the desert fathers. Um, Now, I'm not holding up the desert fathers, by the way, as the great model for us on because I think evangelism is important. And uh, I think there's a time to get away, but the Desert Fathers seem to get away for like 40 years at a time, you know? Now, I can't say that they didn't save more people through their prayers than I have through, you, you know what I mean? Uh, if, we're, if we're net fishing, what role different people play, I don't want to judge it, but I, I did want us to understand that there's some really helpful things for us as we think about disciple making that we can learn uh, here. You've probably heard the statistic that says that the average first-time visitor to your church decides within seven minutes if they're not coming back. So what are they encountering in those seven minutes that has the potential to make or break their experience? I'm Abby Barris, designer and ministry veteran, and I would love to help you make those seven minutes as effective as possible. You can find me at abbybarrisinteriors.com or at churchdesignhelp.com. To learn more about how I can help you create strategic spaces that support your processes, communicate your values, and make space for everyone. So uh, I looked at the uh, disciple-making fathers from Sinai, and uh, I was especially drawn to this picture in the bottom right. It's, uh, this is the museum at St. Catherine's Monastery. 
And uh, that picture there uh, refers to another book called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Anybody heard of that book? That's great that nobody's heard of that book. Can I tell you why? Because it's probably one of the uh, most sold, highest gross, I mean, gross sales of this book surpass my utmost for his highest and all the, anything Max Licato has ever written, this book is much more popular in the history of the world. It was written in 600 A.D., so it's been around for over 1,400 years, and uh, it's broken down two ways. It's called The Ladder of Divine Ascent, or there's a simple uh, kind of introductory version uh, to it called 30 Steps to Heaven, and this is the number one book in the world read by people who keep Lent. And so many people around the world, this is the book that they read every Lenten season because it's got 30 uh, readings that go with the, the practice of Lent. But I thought you'd want to know a little bit about St. John uh, Climacus is how you say his name. That means St. John of the Ladder. And he's the person that wrote the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And uh, I think I've got the dates of his life. Do, did I or did I miss that already? Yeah, I think I didn't put it in there. Uh, but anyway, he uh, lived from uh, 520 to 600 or something like that. And uh, he wrote the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And then later they made this icon that goes with the book. And uh, the icon was after the book. So the book comes first. But if you were studying this icon, and we were a preliterate society, and pictures tell us things that help us, what would you see in this picture that you think might help you as a disciple or as a disciple maker? Let's just assume this is the image of a disciple and disciple makers. What do you see? Okay, spiritual persecution. There's a spiritual battle going on, isn't there? A battle between good and evil? Okay. Keep going. What else? Okay. People are on a journey up, right? Towards the top. Okay, yeah. You got saints or angels up in the left, praying, working, pleading, part of the process. What else do you see? Uh Uh-huh. Well, they are climbing, but they are climbing kind of all with their hands out, like a, in, a, in a posture of prayer. So I think you're right. Mm-hmm. What else do you see? Yeah, one character that's dressed differently. Uh, some people say that that's John, but I think it's Anthony, uh, who's kind of considered the patron saint of the Desert Fathers. And I think, why, why would he be dressed differently? He's a disciple maker, exactly. They're, they're all following after him, right? So he's in some way the disciple maker for this story. Anything else you see? Okay, yeah. And I couldn't tell you who in the world he is. There's actually a little something written above his name on there too, but I don't know that part of the story yet. I couldn't find any research that would tell me. Um, 
I think that the argument is that these are angels and that these are all demons here, fallen angels, who are pulling people off of the, of the ladder. And uh, so what I thought you'd want to see here is that the life of a disciple is a journey upwards to God. And Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way, which leads to life. And there are a few who find it. And so this ladder is supposed to be reminding us that the way is hard and only a few are going to find it. That this is a difficult road that you're being uh, invited to journey upon. And sometimes I think we make... uh, Falling after Christ seems so casual. You know, it's just one more thing you do in your spare time. And uh, the latter makes you realize that, no, this is the supreme journey of your life. This, this is what your life is all about, is this journey towards the Father. And um, disciple makers are those we follow on the journey to Christ. I blew up that little piece there and you can see. You know, they're saying, be imitators of me as I'm an imitator of Christ. You follow me, walk in my steps as I walk in someone else's. But it's a great responsibility, isn't it? To actually say, hey, somebody, you follow behind me and I'll show you the way. And disciple makers are willing to do that. The devil and his demons are out to get us. Isn't that part of the story? You know, that's the part of the Jesus story. Uh, He goes into the wilderness to be Tempted. But here we find um, in Ephesians 6, it says we should put on the whole armor of God that we could stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so we begin to understand this is a difficult journey. We are inviting people to imitate us as we imitate Christ. And we understand that there is an enemy, an evil one that is out to thwart this process. We don't make disciples in in a world that is uh, supportive. John Climacus says, don't be surprised that you fall every day. Don't give up, but stand your ground courageously and assuredly the angels who guard you will honor your patience. And that there are angels that are out to help us. If we're discipling and disciple making, that there are angels that are out to help us in this process. Which of you uh, of the angels was ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are the angels not ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? So there are unseen forces at work in the disciple-making process. There are people that don't realize it, but God is working through all of this. You know, I love, uh, I've been reading a little bit from Thomas Aquinas. And he argues for spiritual beings from the fact that there are microscopic beings. That's a fascinating argument he makes. He says that all the way down the chain in microscopic, it just keeps going, going, going. So why wouldn't it move the opposite direction between us and God? And so he argues for angels. And uh, it's a fascinating argument. But I just think it's important for us to know that, uh, you know, we, we should be praying that God would send his ministering angels to protect, take care of. 
And we need prayer partners. Uh, down there in the bottom right were all the saints that are praying for those uh, in the midst of this journey. So the other thing that y'all may not have noticed and you didn't care to count is that the ladder has 30 rungs on it. And that's why it's called 30 Steps to Heaven or the Ladder of Divine Ascent. How many years was there to Jesus' life? 30. And so the, the rungs of the ladder are tied to the years of the life of Jesus while he was on this earth. But if you're like me, 30 is a lot to remember. I don't have it in me. You know what I mean? I, re- I read the book. I've read the book. But 30 is a lot to remember. So I was wondering if y'all would care for three. Is that better for us? To boil down the, uh, what, the, what the fathers would say to us, I think we can boil it down to three. And that's because I want to tell you about this guy, St. Arsenius. He was born in 354 at Rome and died in 450 at Troy. And the reason I want to tell you about him is because the story is told about Arsenius that uh, he was reflecting on the means that he should take to become a saint. Remember, that word is a small s saint, just a holy person in the sight of God. What do I need to do to be considered holy in the sight of God? Is that a question we even ask today? God, what do I need to be for you to consider me holy in your sight? But he's pondering this question. What would it look like for me to be holy in your sight? And God caused him to hear these words. Remember, he heard these words almost 1,700 years ago. Here they are. Flee. Well, here they are in Latin. Fuge, pace, quince. Or in English, flee, be silent, be still, and speak to me. And so I wanted you to think about these three words for just a minute. Flee, be silent, be still, and pray. Because a lot of what the Desert Fathers encourage us is if we want to live this holy life, if we want to live a life that pleases God, one of the things we've got to think about is uh, our affections. And so let's think about flee for just a minute. Because I think it's important for us to understand that Arsenius or the Desert Fathers didn't mean escape as much as they meant an internal call to detach. That you just can't be connected to everything and be connected to God. There's this sense in which you need to disconnect from some things in order to connect to things that are more important. And we live in a world where if we're not hyper-connected, we're convinced that we're missing out on something. But the spiritual discipline of detachment is the art of learning what to let go of. It's the art of closing doors and saying, I don't need that one open anymore. I can let that one go. Uh, Solitude is the practice of intentionally unplugging, of uh, spending time alone, of focusing upon God. And so I wanted to ask you guys, what does it look like to flee in our culture? Put your phone down. Yeah. We got to walk away. We got to learn how to, and we got to teach our people that we're discipling that the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold. And if you are so plugged in, I mean, think about what TikTok is teaching kids. Think about the, the entire goal of Twitter is to get people to follow you, right? 
tell them what's happening in your day. So, I mean, do you ever just feel like people don't need to know what's happening in my day? They need to be plugged into God, and I don't need to get in the way of that so much. Uh, you know, there are certain things we need to block. If we're going to flee, you know, we know that there are certain things we need to just cut, right? There's other things. I love this idea. Uh, Richard Good gave me this word, that we need to unsubscribe. You know, at the bottom of so many of those emails, it says to unsubscribe, click here. How many of us in our lives, we know we need to unsubscribe from some things because we've lost all the margins in our life? They may not even be bad things, but they've lost their, they're getting in the way of our spiritual walk. And so that's what flee meant for them. But we've got to learn how to just, you know what I mean? We've got to be very intentional about saying, I don't need that. That is not helping me to live the life of a disciple. And fleeing was this idea of you got to run from things. And if you read, man, they ran from sexual sin and they ran from, from uh, materialism. People would try to give the desert fathers things and they would, you know, because if I take this, then I'm going to own it. And if I own it, I have to take care of it. If I take care of it, it's going to take my time. And so they just began to realize that there were tentacles in all of these things. And they were just like, be very careful and be ready to run from things because you want your heart's affection to be set upon God. Be silent. The primary language God uses to speak to us is silence. How hard is it for us to hear a word from God? in a world filled with noise. And so silence is this gift. The Lord is in his holy temple at all the earth. Keep silence before him. I didn't come up with this next slide, but I, I believe it. Silence can be praise. We don't have to open our mouth to praise God. Sometimes just being still in the presence, being silent in the presence of God uh, is a way. And to quiet our mind so that we can hear from God. How many times do we just not ever get any quiet? We got background noise. We got, I mean, we just don't get to the point where we can hear from God. And the desert is a place where the silence is deafening. You can hear from God and God can speak to us. It's where we renounce, we renounce things that uh, get in the way because it's hard to be silent when the news is just so prevalent, right? And so at times we just have to say, no, we're not going to feed upon this stuff. We're going to learn how to be silent. How do we be silent in our culture today? How do we live this out? What does it look like? Get into nature, not to worship it, but because it's, it's God's classroom, right? Very good. Somebody else? Solitude, getting alone. Deciding that that's worthy of your time. I think for ministers to block out time, to be silent, seems like we're not working. But how can we hear from our boss if we don't block out time? Any other boss you had, you'd block out time to hear from them, right? How do you block out time to hear from your boss? People say you're not working and you'll say, no, I'm listening to the boss, you know, Martin Luther would talk about how he couldn't get his work done unless he spent four hours alone with God. He just didn't feel like there was any way to get it all done. 
But it was this that uh, drove everything else. You know, we got to turn down the volume in our lives. We live in an angry world. Everybody's yelling at everybody else. And being silent is learning how not to raise the volume. Meditation, very important, especially filling ourselves with the word from God, right? So we're going to be silent and let the word of God speak. I think there's a time to be mute and to just not respond. Just let things go and be silent. When we're silent, one of the things that we discover is that our thoughts just blow up in our brain. You know what I mean? You want to be alone in your thoughts and to realize that silence also reveals the the sin inside of me, the anger, the pride, the resentment, the hurt. Boy, when I get silent and I decide I'm just going to be silent, it's it's amazing to me what God teaches me about what's happening inside of me. And uh, we've got to be people who who aren't afraid to embrace silence and and let that be something that's that's valued. Now I'm an evangelical just like you guys, right? But I do think that there are some skills that we can learn from this that can really help us. Meditation on scripture, you know, is super important for us. But just, you know, taking that scripture and then being quiet with it and just ruminating over it. But but understanding that man, we've got to listen. And then third, be still and pray. Be still and know that I am God. Wesley says, always remember the essence of Christian holiness is simplicity and purity. One design, one desire. Entire, complete devotion to God. So be still. Don't be so busy. You might be doing too much. Have you ever thought about what you're doing that God doesn't care if you're doing it or not? Yeah, and we're like Martha. But Lord, if I don't do it, nobody will eat. You know, we got to sometimes just be still. We got to be still. This is where we learn to just kind of release the things in our heart when we're still before God. We just turn everything over to God. One of the things the desert fathers would do, this blows me away. The desert fathers would stand outside their cell in the middle of the desert and they would face east as the sun was going down. And they will stand like this until they feel the sun on their face. They'll stand there all night, not move, not say a word. Just listen to God and be still. And the sun wakes, you know, ends their stillness the next day, but they'll, they'll do this all night. And it's just this idea of let me hear from you, God. Let you be all I need. Let me... Let it not be, you know, something that I'm doing. You know, I'm so busy trying to make a name for myself, trying to, um, you know, orchestrate everything, right? And isn't it a little bit embarrassing how we orchestrate things instead of praying about them? That uh, we run to try and accomplish things that God would do for us? John Fox said, a good Christian is bound to relinquish not only goods and children, but life itself for the glory of his Redeemer. Therefore, I'm resolved to sacrifice everything in this transitory world for the sake of salvation in a world that will last to eternity. And uh, so one of the things that's very, very important to uh, silence is 
uh, also to, you know, to be uh, still, to be silent, to be still, is to just do without. And fasting is a great way to do without. Stills your digestive system, stills your stomach. It just, it's part of this whole idea of God stilling us. I didn't know if you realized today's Yom Kippur. Um, so uh, people all around the world are fasting today uh, just because it's, it's the day of fasting in Israel. But for us to look and to dec- decide that there's going to be times where we're just still, where we're going to do without, we're not going to. And um, I've learned, this isn't a big deal, but I've learned to fast two days a week. Okay, and I'm not telling y'all that to brag about it because it's really uh, more discipline than it is anything else. It's just deciding that, uh, and you know, part of it for me is I'm committed to pray for David Young every day. Um, I think he spoke today before I got here, but um, but I I want to be able to tell him, hey, that two days a week I'm fasting for you and some other people I know that have cancer. I'm praying desperately for my kids. My kids are doing great, but I, you know, my, my son's trying to figure out his way. And there's just things that I want more than I want food. There's things that are more important to me than eating. And I want God to know that. And the best way I know is for my stomach to tell God what my greatest desires are. And so I do without this so that my stomach can talk to God. Now, one day I hope to be really good at it, like Francis of Assisi. Uh, it says that he devoured fasting like another man does a buffet, that he delighted in it. It just it thrilled him uh, to fast. But uh, Yom Kippur teaches us about that. So present-day living is to be still is to block your calendar. That be silent and be still just goes together, right? And uh, we learn, hey, Jesus, what are you doing behind that rock? Teach us to pray because you're, there's something back there that we want to know about. And so, uh, you know, we learn to do without. So here I am. I've come to the end. Uh, Flee, be silent, be still, and pray. Those are the words. They tie to the life of Jesus. Uh, Flee, unsubscribe. Be silent, mute. Be still, block it out so that you can pray. So here we go. Last three points, okay? The life of a disciple is often formed in the desert. It's in the desert that we learn how to do without. One of the desert fathers said, come to me and tell me what you deeply desire, and I'll tell you how to live without it. And I wonder with a financial crisis looming, and the only way we've ever known how to solve a financial crisis in my lifetime is to spend our way out of it, There may be a time for desert discipleship to tell our people, this is a time to learn how to live without. This is a time for us to streamline and to minimize so that we can be um, more dependent upon God and so we have greater resources to share with the lost world. But, uh, you know, the financial crisis may be our desert. It may be that which breaks us. And so we need to live into it and to understand that we're equipped for it. The life of a disciple is a journey upward to God. 
Uh, the community at Sinai, I asked about how they spend their day. Six hours they sleep. Six hours they work. Six hours of private study and devotion. Six hours of corporate prayers. But those are the daily offices that they all participate in there. I think it's important for us to understand that uh, this life that we're on is not supposed to be an easy one. We're supposed to buffet our bodies, not buffet our bodies, right? And so we take this seriously. We understand that this is a hard way. And disciple makers embrace the hard way and then encourage other people to follow after. And the, the tools of the desert can form us as well. Because what we really need more than anything else is to be dependent upon God. And flee, be silent, be still, is to put ourselves fully into the presence of God so that he can talk to us. Uh, I'd love for you to think about how important those words were. If we flee, are silent, and still, we can just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And I believe God will give us a word, and he'll also equip us to be the disciple makers uh, that we uh, desperately want. Thanks again for joining the Real Life Theology Podcast again today. We'll be back on Tuesday with another session. As we are closing in on Christmas, we're going to keep rolling them out, and we're just excited to have you with us.